Happy 2024, Erin. How are you today? I am uh, pretty good. <laughs> I feel like I'm still scrambling to conclude the year. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like you want to tidy up all the things and mm-hmm. feel like, oh, clean slate for 2024. But I swear, no matter how many things I put to bed, you know, they just more show up. I think that that just sounds like life in general, but yes, I totally agree. <laughs> I do. I think so too, but I don't know if it just feels more uh, substantial when it's the end of the year. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Not to go- mention it's like still boxes of Christmas things. Like yeah. where do you put the items and then you have to get rid of the old items. And mm-hmm. so that there's a whole decluttering thing mm-hmm. that every Every day I work on and I really enjoy doing it and I keep thinking, okay, I'm done. And then like, oh no. Yeah. I am the same way. And I'm the kind of person that likes to take all of my Christmas stuff down before January 1st hits. So I can for real have just a clean January 1st. I love Christmas. I'm the first person to put, put up Christmas decorations like before Thanksgiving and my husband hates me for it. I love the holidays, but the second Christmas is over. I am like Scrooge on December 26th and I just want it all down. It's over. I'm sad. Get it all away. And I want to have a clean house for January 1. So I totally understand. Yeah. How about you? How's, uh, how's your 2024 so far? Um, So good. So good. Um, y'all will find this out soon. We're going to do, a whole episode on this. But as you guys know, we actually took the last two weeks off because I had some big life changes happen. Um, I adopted a newborn and it was the craziest experience of my life. And she's amazing. And she was born on December 22nd. And yeah, I don't want to like give too much away because like I said, I'm going to do a whole episode on it because there's just so many things that happened and the universe had to kind of all work together in order to get her her here safely. And I just feel like a whole episode needs to be dedicated on that. But yes, so we took a two week break because now, holy shit, I'm a mom. It's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) It's literally batshit crazy. Um, so yeah, yeah. So stay tuned for that. (laughs) Yeah. Stay tuned for that. Um, yeah, that was pretty much my whole Christmas was just her and, you know, her birth, bringing her home, introducing her to our families and kind of trying to figure out what our new normal looks like with a baby. It's just been a really beautiful time of nesting and happiness incongruent with sadness and grief and you know, the bubbling up of all of these crazy big emotions of loss. And I think for Sam specifically, just, I think it's all coming to a head for him about how sad he's been for the last five years, because now that she's here, he's realizing how much we have missed out on. And so it's just been like, we've just been a big house full of emotions for the last few weeks, but we're here and we're doing it and it's very exciting and I feel all the feels right now just all the feels so but yeah yeah that's yeah yes I feel a lot of feels too 
<laughs> I, I feel do. them for you. I feel them yeah. as a witness and yeah. I feel like we have an opportunity to help a lot of our listeners mm-hmm. become more educated in a process that's very common, but very unknown. And very complicated. And Adoption very complicated. is not easy. Right. Yeah. And I think everyone just has this sort of predetermined canned uh, construct of, of what it is, how it happens, and what happens to you once it's done. Yeah. And I think it's going to be really fun to pull that apart for people and let them see some of the underbelly mm-hmm. <laughs> of what adoption can be. Not that it's just not all peaches and cream. No, sure. it's not. There's so much to it. It's not just about, you know, I feel like ego comes to mind a lot when I think about adoption. Like, why am I doing this? Is it for me? Is it for the baby? Is it for the family that I've always dreamed of? Is it to heal wounds? Like, why? why are we adopting? And so I think it can be a lot of all of it. I can, I think that for the majority, like you said, there's like a canned thought that, you know, okay, well you're infertile. Why don't you just adopt? And it is not that simple. I mean, it is a complicated, expensive process that is not linear. I mean, there are twists and turns and ups and downs and you have to bend over backwards and you know I think it's just not an easy trajectory in any way shape or form so yeah I definitely want to talk about that quite a bit because it's you know something that's obviously like we had no idea what we were getting into I mean we did you know we researched quite a bit and really wanted and I have an adopted brother um, but that was an international adoption when I was a kid you know like that's the most familiar I was really with adoption Um, so yeah it's just something that I think it would be important for us to unpack because I do think that the infertility community that's a comment that they get all the time that we get all the time well why don't you just adopt it's not like that that's it's you know I don't know. So anyways, yes, stay tuned for that episode because we are going to talk about my journey and kind of bumps in the road that I went through and, you know, just how crazy the whole experience was from start to finish. So yeah, but not this week, this this week, week. Yes, we are talking to the lovely Eleanor Worf. Yes. She is an embryologist, actually. Um, She is across the pond in the UK, and our meeting was pretty kismet, I would say. Um, We were both, or you guys, were became friends on LinkedIn because, you know, your missions were very similar, or our missions, I guess you could say, and y'all connected, and we absolutely adore her. She is an embryologist and a certified fertility coach in the UK. Um. And everything that she has to say is just so beautiful and poetic, but she is a scientist. So she has the warm and fuzzies and she is a member of the executive committee for the UK's Association for Reproductive Scientists. So she kind of does it all and it's really impressive. And fertility coaching is like a pretty new thing in the UK, it sounds like. Um, She may be the only real accredited fertility coach in the UK is what it sounds like, right? I'm not, not, am I making that up? As far as, yeah, no, I don't think so. And I think she comments on that in the piece Mm -hmm. that, that, that she's done a particular kind of training that a lot of what we consider to be fertility coaches don't have. Yeah, for sure. So she is the go-to, a go-to person for that. 
if you're really looking to learn more about not just your own fertility journey, of course, but, you know, the science behind embryo development, I think. Um, so yeah, it's a really wonderful conversation and we hope you enjoy it. to have you on the Protected Space podcast. It was an absolute joy. I don't even actually remember how we all connected, but our first meeting was just lovely in every way possible. And yeah, we're so excited to take the conversation we had there and share it with as many people as they want to listen. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. And it's my pleasure to be here today. Um, and yeah, it was, it was so good to be able to connect with you, um, across the pond and very far yes. away. Um, and yeah, I think it's been pretty, well, a little bit surprising, but maybe not so much that actually, um, even though we're very far away, we're still dealing with the same kind of issues. Uh, it doesn't matter which continent we're on, everybody, you know, there's people out there that's, um, that are suffering uh, with problems with fertility and the themes, the themes in that, um, I think are generally quite common themes. So um, it's, it's not really surprising, I suppose, um, but it's great that we can join up and, you know, hopefully help some more people or, uh, you know, just make some more connections and, get rid of some of that sort of isolation that people sometimes feel. Right. It's true. I, I heard somebody say one time that infertility knows no discriminations and it really doesn't. I mean, it, yeah. it is everywhere all the time. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the world. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always, doesn't solve the problem. So mm -hmm. yeah. I think it's a pain. Beings, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess I met Eleanor through LinkedIn. We connected through LinkedIn through some posts and had a little bit of a, a nice um, content romance, I guess, sharing each other's <laughs> things back and forth and then discovering some of our synchronicities there. I think you and... just developed a whole new term. <laughs> content romance. <laughs> Oh, I love that. I love that she said that. Oh, I love, oh, I'm going to repost that. Oh, I love it. So yeah, a little content romance. So Eleanor, tell everyone who you are. What's, why is this an important conversation for us to have with you? Who are you in this yeah, well, place? I saw what you were doing um, on LinkedIn, um, the fertility resort. And I thought that sounded really interesting because um I've been working uh, in that fertility space for more than 20 years now. Um, and I'm, my focus really now is, is about being able to advocate and support patients through that journey. So that's what piqued my interest. Um, and so, yeah, I think it was um, in 1998, 
back in the last century when I got my first job um, working in a little andrology lab. Um, and that's where I started to learn about how science can help people achieve um, their families that they are longing for. And it was just something so fascinating to me that um, I've never really um, worked in, in anything different in all this time. Over the last 20, 25 years, um, I've been busy building my skills and as an embryologist uh, and now as a, a qualified embryologist, um, I've learned all of the skills that we can possibly do in the lab. Uh, and as new things have come up, always been learning new things, which is partly why it's really kept me in that role. It's, it's such an interesting role. And what I love about it is that just the practicality of being able to use science. And I love science. I studied science at university. And so now the opportunity to be able to use that science and some of that scientific thinking um, in such a practical way um, to solve real world problems. It's so satisfying. And although we're not always successful, when we are successful, it is the ultimate job satisfaction. Um, and obviously, we're, you know, when we're, we're not just talking about making pregnancies, making babies, um, there's a bigger picture and it's actually creating families for people, which um, is it's so special, really. And it's such a privilege um, to be able to be a part of somebody's journey to to that end. Um, so uh, it's a fascinating job. I've challenged myself with writing scientific papers during that time and always there's always something new to think about. Um, and I suppose I've kept on doing that um, really without thinking too much. And more recently, um, when COVID hit, uh, it actually was a point for me where I stopped for a bit and actually thought about, okay, you know, what am I doing here? I've been doing this job in embryology and working in one of the biggest clinics in London, in the UK, um, at Guys and St. Thomas's Hospital. Um, and it just, as I had that time to think, it made me wonder if there was any way that I could better use my my knowledge and my skills. Um, and after all these years, I realized that actually what I love most about that job in embryology is, um, is when I get to speak to patients. And I'm curious about people. I love to be able to understand people a bit better and um, really, you know, get under the surface a little bit um, and the psychology of what happens to people when they when they come against challenges like this is fascinating to me as well. Um, so um, an opportunity came up for me which was to do an apprenticeship in professional coaching and I immediately it really was something that I immediately thought yeah this is 
this is right up my street. I'm, I'm going to be uh, able to help people, which is one of my values. You know, I've always been in a job that's actually has that um, sort of endpoint of, of being of use, be, being able to help and bring people forwards. And so um, I also knew that I was quite good at speaking to my colleagues and speaking to patients. And um, I, I was able to already able to do that. Um, and so I thought it would be great to formalize those skills. And as I did that apprenticeship, I realized a little bit more about the, the fundamentals of coaching and what, how, what coaching can bring to people. And I realized that it was a perfect match um, for me to be able to support people through their fertility treatment, their fertility journey. So as part of my apprenticeship, I set up a pilot study in fertility coaching, um, which was just bringing that sort of the same kind of scientific principles that you might bring to any new treatment is, you know, does coaching actually help people? I think it will. Um, but let's let's find out. And so um, I I did a pilot study. Um, I coached. How did you have patients. them? How did you set up the study? What were the parameters? Like, was it a survey? Was it? Yeah. So so what I did, I had to. My main sort of uh, hurdle was to convince the management of the, the the clinic that they should allow me to do this so um so the first thing was to try to explain what coaching is and even for me it was a quite um a new thing to help people not by giving advice but by asking questions yep. and listening a bit more. Um, and so that principle of coaching, and I could see how that helped people. I started off coaching my colleagues um, within the hospital and I could see how powerful that was. Um, and also receiving coaching myself as part of the course. Um, I realized that it was something that actually you very rarely get um, somebody who you can trust, who will allow you to just, just talk, think over your, your thoughts, um, think very clearly once you have that space. And then somebody who's listening, who's interested, who's following you and who will ask you the odd sort of incisive question that makes you just think a little bit further it was so powerful to have that space and the time to be heard um and so i needed to convince the management of the um the assisted conception unit that this really is going to be something that will will help our patients and that will be a service improvement to us mm -hmm. um, and so to use my time on this apprenticeship in that way um, is perfect, really. I'm learning some skills and then I'm giving them straight back to our patients in a hospital um, to, to really help them to make the most of 
their fertility treatment, which is so really is that, the ultimate thing. Is that an ongoing study? Are you still in that process? No, so I, I finished the pilot. So I conducted the pilot between um, September last year, 2022, and March 23. So over six months, um, the study involved inviting patients to receive coaching if they if they wanted to try that um, and being very open that this was a, a trial we were just trying to work out and find out how exactly coaching might might help um, to ultimately build some confidence and reduce anxiety about that process that was going to be happening so people opted in if they wanted to and they were given up to six sessions of coaching just as many sessions as they wanted to have but up to six sessions um, and I had a questionnaire that I would ask before the coaching started and then a feedback questionnaire at the end so that then once I'd finished um, after the six months I could collate the data the qualitative data um, to see you know exactly how people felt that they had been helped if they felt they had been helped mm -hmm. by the coaching and so it was a great way to to identify whether you know how I thought I might help people was actually the case or whether there were un any other ways that they had been helped by the coaching that I hadn't really thought of um, so I got lots of feedback. All of the feedback actually was was so positive and um, it really was quite humbling to hear how patients had received the coaching and how for many patients, um, you know, really that was the first time that they'd had the opportunity to have so much time and space to to think about what their decisions were going to be and the opportunity to ask um, any questions that they might have. So one of the common things was that although um, patients had got a list of questions that they, they had thought about before they would come into the clinic and have their appointment, um, even with that preparation, when they actually get to the clinic, there's such a rush of adrenaline and the time just kind of disappears everything goes by so quickly you think you understand what you're doing and you think you understand all the instructions and then the second that you walk out of the clinic uh you realize oh I, I didn't ask the thing that I wanted to ask and actually I'm not quite sure really what I'm doing and um <laughs> so many questions just immediately pop up um so yeah I I really identified that there was a gap there for patients um, the moments that they have with the doctor or the nurse where they're receiving a lot of information having to sign different things was not really the time that they needed to really think about um, what was happening what the result meant to them if they were receiving a result um, there was there was just a, a gap there um, for somebody to 
come in and listen to them, understand them, and not give them any more advice. Most patients have received advice from, you know, all corners of their world, their friends, their family, everybody's got something to say. So actually, I think it's refreshing then to just be able to talk to somebody who they know is going to listen to every word they say, not interrupt them, um, not give them advice, but just to help them to establish what they want to do. What's, what are they going to decide to do? And if that person can also help them understand what's happening first, then that empowers and brings confidence to somebody who then feels more able to make those decisions based on facts and trusted information that you know they haven't had to go to dr google to find out and um try to interpret some really complicated data and um yeah it was yeah. it was just um something that was that was really needed i think and so as a How result did well i uh, so i i wrote up my trial uh -huh. and i included um all the evidence about how people felt before the coaching what they said about the coaching what they were expecting before the coaching and how they actually experienced the coaching and i mean people's words are so powerful you know when you see uh, a quote of what somebody's actually said that lived experience is is a really powerful thing we all know in the fertility clinic that our patients are under stress um, it's very well documented um, that at least i think uh, on average about three quarters of patients in the fertility clinic are experiencing anxiety up to 50% might be experienced some form of depression. So we're, we're all aware of that. And we're all often under a lot of pressure to keep seeing as many patients as we can. The appointments are shorter and shorter. So we all understand that there is more to do. And I think it was really came down to a no brainer for the clinic that if somebody was there offering a, a, a service that we knew was helping patients that you know it's it was quite difficult to turn down and because i already work in this clinic um it wasn't a big stretch for me to be able to use a proportion of my time as a fertility coach and still be able to to work as an embryologist which is which is what I'm doing now. So I have a permanent um, fertility coaching clinic. And so I just have my two different hats. Um, when I'm working as an embryologist, I have my scrubs on and I'm in that role. I'm in the lab. Um, and that's completely separate to when I'm working as a coach. So I take off the scrubs and I'm wearing my normal clothes and just having that sort of, even just having that change of appearance helps me to put myself in that different mindset mm -hmm. um, to, to then work effectively as a coach and 
and just spend my time listening to patients and talking to them about the things that they they want to discuss within the coaching. Can I ask how you split your time with that? Um, that sounds like two full-time jobs. How do you organize that time? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I work part-time, so I work three days a week um, in the fertility clinic as an embryologist. That's okay. my official role. Right. And so since I have started up the coaching clinic, I spend one afternoon of those three days doing coaching. So, you know, it's really, it's really in its early stages. I think even for patients to understand why they might want to have coaching, um, there's still some work to do there to actually, you know, for people to understand why they might want to put themselves forward. There's there's no extra cost. Any patient who's attending the clinic is um, has uh, coaching available to them. But um, yeah, wow. I, I'm growing it from a tiny little seed. And at the moment, I have some of my time to coach. And as it gets a bit more popular and you know, I'm sure um, a bit more demanding of my time, yeah. then hopefully I can adjust and sort of change the proportion of my time that I use or perhaps have another clinic on another day that I can, um, that where I can, you know, get a little bit more time to actually spend doing the coaching. What about publishing the paper? Did you publish it outside of your clinic? Well, I did, um, I did take it to, um, there's a, an annual fertility conference that happens, well, it happens in the UK, um, but it's, you know, attended by people from, you know, all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, so I did, I wrote an abstract for that meeting and I presented it as a poster, um, was uh last january was it january 23 yes um so it's just like a just an initial thing just saying well you know um talking about my study and um just suggesting coaching as an addition to fertility counseling which is what is already available to to all patients um all registered clinics in the UK um, well, must amazing. offer counselling. Um, I don't think that's, that's definitely not like that in the United States no. at all. Yeah, I mean, it sounds it, it sounds great. The reality of that mm -hmm. is that um, often the, the, the offer of counselling is very limited. It might only be one session mm -hmm. um, that you receive. So even one session of counselling for, you know, every patient would count as you know as being part of that offer so it's not something that everybody asks for um and even if people do want to have counseling they might only receive one session that's uh, free to them and after that often patients you know go and find other sources of support 
Um, but so I suppose just on the point of um, publishing work, I'm aware that um, that I don't think there are any other accredited coaches who are offering fertility coaching. Um, I I mean I'll say in the world because you know I don't know of any. There might be some tucked away somewhere that I haven't been able to find yet uh on linkedin or you know any of these social medias that does help you to connect up with other people doing the same things in different parts of the world um but i think it's something unique that i'm offering now because not only am i a fertility professional but i'm also i've done the work i've passed the exams and i'm an accredited coach as well um and there are lots of people that um will call themselves a fertility coach um, and they all offer slightly different things but I suppose for me the coaching that I'm offering is um, based on um, research and study and it's um, I suppose I that's what I wanted to do is, is formalize the coaching skills by doing that qualification so many people use those formal coaching skills to to bring um, coaching for um, companies within companies, bring a coaching culture. It's very popular now. Yes. Um, corporate coaching, bring the best out of people. Um, and that, you know, these coaching models are very well known and very successful at helping people make the most of their careers. Um, but I'm not sure that there are any other people using those same techniques to support people, for instance, in this um, field of infertility um, and supporting patients rather than staff within, a, within an organisation. So my aim ultimately is um, to find an academic perhaps an academic in um, the coaching world who I can collaborate with to really write some formative papers about exactly what uh, and how can coaching in this way um, support and help patients going through their fertility journeys. And that's something that, you know, it's that's not going to happen straight away, but it's something that ideally I would like to do um, given the time and I'm sure it will it will take some time but it means that you know I don't want this fertility coaching just to be about me it can't just be me the embryologist becoming a coach uh, I can't do all the coaching and I'm not the right coach for everybody mm. so ultimately I would love for coaching to always be an option for patients alongside counselling whichever fertility clinic they go to um, because I think it's you know it's so useful for patients to be able to choose the support that they would like um, counseling is there but counseling is not the right support for everybody um, and you know counseling in the UK I think particularly has a difficult reputation um, and it's a little bit better now, but um, there are lots of people that think, oh, well, if if I attend counselling, then that means that I'm failing or I'm going mad or, um, you know, wrong. it's a sign of weakness. 
whereas coaching is is you know it's a lot more approachable just by the sort of the sound of it you know it's like having a sports coach you know everybody can kind of relate to that and it's quite you know um something that you might tell your friends that you're doing oh yeah i've got a coach on my side and you know it's great rather than you know the issue of talking about your emotions which uh in england we're not we're not that great at. <laughs> so i want to ask you and i think we've touched on this when we spoke before about how how you see the process of ivf how it has changed since you've been in it. You've been in this a long time. It has changed quite a bit. It seems like the changes are picking up pace. There's, we've talked about the add-ons. And now what used to be a little bit more of a streamlined process, this is what we do it and this is how we do it. And everyone just sort of got on board with that. Now there are so many left and rights. There are so many divergent channels, which is extra testing over here or these extra steps and they're all essentially considered quote add-ons but again the jury is out on whether or not they are ultimately productive beneficial informative um, and whether that information actually you know just to get more information doesn't necessarily affect whether or not you're going to have weight Right. And I think everyone makes that assumption. Oh, well, if we just have more information, then I'm more likely to have a baby. But I don't think that we've decided that that's really true. More information sometimes just is more information, but it's not an increase in success. And I know that you published or you posted on LinkedIn, um, you know, that the UK had spent a lot of time sussing out some of the things that are highly recommended these days to really try to determine which of these things do we think are beneficial, beneficial enough to, to actually encourage people to do them. So I think, you know, marrying it back to coaching, that's one of the things that people need so much help on is that now they're faced with so many options that the decision fatigue on trying to decide their course of action is really challenging. So how do you, what do we say about this? Well, I mean, it's a huge question and obviously, um, I do like a very compound question. <laughs> <laughs> Where do we start? I mean, I think the, the good thing is that um, in the fertility world, the industry that is fertility, um, there's a lot of incentive to keep innovating and innovation is so important you know we we always want to keep moving forward and keep making improvements to what we can do and ultimately to just to be more successful and let's face it you know overall the success rates of ivf in general um are still pretty low you know when you're considering how much money is being spent um for sometimes what might be a 30 or 40 percent chance of getting what you're spending the money on it's not it's not really great and how many attempts you might need yeah. to get there it's not as though yeah. you're saying well this you know 
per per single unit, right? You might spend yeah. an entire year going yeah. through repetition. Yeah, it's like you can't imagine. Yeah, you can't imagine spending that much money, you know, to buy a car, and then when you come to collect the car, you've got a forty percent chance of actually getting it. I mean, you just, <laughs> you know, great analogy, right? It uh, is. I think I'll pass, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, but obviously, yeah, you know, um, that sets the scene really, doesn't it? Because for people who are used to being able to spend their money and buy what they need, not being able to get that, well, not with any amount of money that they might spend, then sets the scene of some level of desperation right. and vulnerability yeah. vulnerability to any of these car dealers who might say to you oh well you know if you buy this extra part of the car it might appear or you know right. i i don't know how <laughs> if the analogy is going to carry on for me there but you know um there there is on the one hand the desperation and and the vulnerability to being sold lots of things and on the other hand you know there is the real need to innovate and create new options. Um, so I think the thing is that, you know, we obviously have to be really careful about the balance between those two. Um, and ultimately, patients need very clear information about whether or not any of these innovations might be something that might increase their chances of getting actually what they want mm -hmm. not just a pregnancy but actually you know the family that they want and that's really you know this is where it gets really really difficult because not even the experts can decide on this and as i'm sure anybody that's looking into fertility treatment can see you know different clinics are offering different things and nobody can really agree, okay, this is definitely the thing that works. And, you know, perhaps this one's dropping off the list. So we have to look to, um, we have to look to our experts then to, to see, okay, uh, what evidence do we have for any of these, these add-on treatments? And there've been two things recently, which have, helped us at least you know here in the uk we're very keyed into um the european society of, of human reproduction and embryology um, which we call eshra um i suppose it's a similar to your asrm um, in america and so they've recently and i did publish this on um on linkedin so they have a working group on add-ons and that working group has recently published their recommendations um, and they made 42 recommendations and they looked at all of the um, different add-on treatments that are currently available. They reviewed all of the, um, the best data that they could find to try and work out, is there any actual evidence that tells us, yes, this is something that is useful to to any person who's going to be having fertility fertility treatment so um useful enough for it to be something that should be included in along with all of your 
um, normal treatment? Um, and the short answer to that is that, well, first of all, um, none of their recommendations are based on high quality evidence. The only evidence they could find was sort of medium or low quality. So we have to also bear that in mind. Um, and really, of all of those um, potential add-ons, there were, well, there was literally one that was recommended. <laughs> and a couple that might be okay in certain scenarios, um, one or two that possibly could be considered given a little bit more data. So this is pretty disappointing, I think, and disappointing for our sample patients um, and quite surprising as well that um, all of those things are available, all of them. Um, so this is where it becomes quite difficult to understand, you know, why clinics are still offering these things, even when the evidence is not there. And I think that's where some of the desperation comes in, because actually some of this um, is complicit with patients. So patients do their own research. They're expected mm -hmm. to be their own mini expert mm -hmm. on this whole process which you know you you become because this is this is the thing that's taking over your life it's the most important thing in your life so of course what do you do with any of these things you go and research it and you try to find out everything you can about it and take control of it a little bit more um so quite often i think patients come with an idea about what add-on treatments they want and ask their clinician you know, I want to have this, and the clinician might explain, hopefully would explain the background to that and the potential that that particular thing might have to improve your chances. It seems um, like both sides are operating from a damned if you do, damned if you don't principle, right? Mm. The, the clinician, I always notice that when I'm talking to somebody, they'll either say, my doctor said this is an option, or yeah. they'll say, my doctor said I could do this, or my doctor said I should do this. And depending right. on which one of those three things was said, you know, in the context of how they heard it, because I don't know what was actually said, but when they're relating it to me, the difference between an option, I could and I should, is a game changer. If yeah. what they heard was, my doctor said I should do this, then they're almost always going to accept that and do it. If they heard, well, the doctor said I could, but they didn't feel like they really felt that there was value. He presented it in a way that was really beneficial to them, then they're less so. And then if it's just an option, it's, you know, it's cherry on the top. It's something mm -hmm. that they're not necessarily going to pay that much attention to. And so I'm always wondering what did the clinician actually say versus what did you hear or what did you are did you present it and then this was an interaction where you were looking for counsel and so they were giving you feedback or was this the doctor was presenting it to you you know what's really happening in those exchanges because mm -hmm. i think depending on that frame of reference it might really change how the patient feels about going with it you know mm -hmm. how to proceed but patients always say to me, well, if I don't do it, 
and then we don't have success, I'll feel like I should have done it because at least maybe it would be beneficial. And if you do do it and you spend the time and you spend the money and then it doesn't really reveal anything, there's nothing that comes of it, then it feels like, well, I wish we hadn't even done that. So there's no win. There's always going to be whether or not you opted for it or didn't, if it doesn't bring you what you want, there's always going to be dissatisfied with your choice. It's a hard place. Yeah, and isn't, isn't that crazy that actually, you know, such an important decision where, you know, quite often a lot of money is, is hanging on that decision. Mm-hmm. It, the decisions are being made, you know, on the basis, not of facts, on the basis of how somebody heard something the doctor say what exact words they used are so important and I suppose you know that it reflects that sort of adrenaline rush when you're in the clinic and you're hanging on to every word or you're you're desperately trying to interpret you know what does this doctor really think you know why do they say in that way um you know that's that's pretty crazy isn't it that these decisions are being made just on a feeling or, you know, um, whether somebody interpreted that the doctor thinks they should have it or not have it. Right. And or, if you go home and have a conversation with someone that you know, that you're close to, that's been through this or whatever, and they already have an opinion of it, oh, we did that, it didn't help us. That immediately colors their judgment. Or someone that's very pro, oh, you have to do, everybody has to do the PGT testing. If you don't do the testing, you're crazy, blah, blah, blah. It colors their judgment so much. And then when you go to the doctor, it's like, like you're saying, it's all this presentation, but there's no chart. There's no graph. There's no, okay, here's what statistically this looks like for you. So it's all up for interpretation. Yeah, exactly. Because well, think... every every patient is different, right? So you know that graph. You might be in the this corner or all the way up on this corner. It totally depends on your own personal circumstances. And many Absolutely. of these treatments, you know, sometimes they could be a reasonable option in certain circumstances, but in other circumstances, it you know it's definitely not going to make any difference. I think it's complicated. This is just from a patient perspective, too. I think it gets really complicated when you see, you know, if you do fall down the Dr. Google rabbit hole or you are, you know, trying to advocate for yourself and you see that your doctor isn't offering outside the box options. Say, like, you're a patient like me who's had a lot of failure and you're like at an impasse. Like, what do you do now? You know, it almost went, even if more responsible just say the doctor is more responsible and is like hey these this is the evidence like doing these add-ons are not going to help your journey but i don't think you ever get to have that conversation like and then from a patient perspective you're like well if my doctor is not offering all these extra things or something new for me to try obviously i need to find another doctor who will so i think it kind of clouds the judgment of the patient too depending on whether or not x doctor does X amount of extra stuff. Does that make sense? Like, I think it, it, I think it can like really cloud the judgment of the patient. Mm-hmm. Like, and like when really in reality, that doctor might just be working off of facts. Like, and this is not really gonna help you, but if it mm-hmm. doesn't feel like it's offered to you to do all this extra stuff, it makes the patient then feel like 
they're not important enough for you to try yeah. the out of the box stuff. Does that make sense? Sort of like it's like yeah, it makes, really yeah, confusing. It makes sense. Yeah, I think it's so important to have trust. Yes, I, I think that's be you know what what we're talking about here is can you trust? Which doctor can you trust? Actually, yeah. So if you go to one clinic, you have a conversation with one doctor. And they say one thing and then another doctor says another thing. Where are you? Who exactly. Are you telling you the, the truth? And I suppose this is this is really where there is a gap yes. to support patients with trusted information. Right. And perhaps just a different perspective. So, you know, for me, I think my clients really appreciate an honest conversation. Yes. You know, that okay this is what's on offer and you know this is something you could do so it's not the doctor that's not offering the treatments it would be somebody who is knowledgeable about what is on offer right and knows okay so there is this treatment available but in your situation you know for these reasons this is is not going to be something that will help you get to your ultimate goal right where we live um, people will often go to a completely different city or market because the doctors that are here you know we live in a smaller district so if they don't feel satisfied with the care that they're getting from those doctors well then i'm going to go to a bigger city that has more clinics that have more diversity where i'm going to find a doctor that does different and more things and that's going to be better and then they're flying across the country and driving six hours for every appointment because they feel like it's worth it yeah and again sometimes it's just presentation it's, right it's i didn't hear what i was hoping to hear it's messaging so right so I'm going to go find someone who's going to say this to me in a different mm. way, or that's going to deliver hope to me in a different yeah. way. And I don't, I'm, that's not to down those people because for some people, yeah, go do that, you know, yeah, do whatever feels like it's going to be satisfying to you. But I hate that they have to. I hate yeah. that, that just, there's just for no... the sake of, yeah. I mean, people, people think differently and for some people, I do believe that hearing some facts is very empowering. You know, knowledge is power. And for some people, that really works. You know, this is how this add-on works. We think it might do this, but it hasn't been proven. Um, it costs this much. So mm -hmm. what's the bottom line? Well, you know, you could choose to have this add-on treatment, it's gonna cost you this much. Or what's your other choice? You could um, decide to spend that money on having another cycle of treatment. Right. Mm -hmm. And what right. are the chances of success with plan A and plan B? And, you know, think about all of the options, all of the options, even, you know, another option is to decide not to have any more treatment or to look at something completely different but you know that's empowerment is is knowing what all of the options are even though some of those options might not be palatable to you it's even empowerment it was, to know what what they all are even if there was a presentation where if 
if you were presented this in the beginning, mm -hmm. you know, these are, this is, these are three common journey presentations, right? If you do one cycle and you have success, well, that's the end of that. But if you don't, here are option A, option B. But so often they don't get any of the information till they're already in the throes of it. They're unsuccessful. They're starting to feel desperate. They're already mm. down the rabbit hole. But they didn't have any way to look ahead to sort of forecast what are we comfortable with? Then all of their decisions are being made from this emotional place. Mm. I feel like we could reorient everyone just by giving them better a, a better continuum of possibility from the beginning. So they could start mm -hmm. looking ahead and saying, okay, this feels like, I don't really want to get to this place. If we're looking like we're going here, we need to have a, you know, a decision in our relationship about whether or not that's something for us to do. Like, I think we could give them more tools in the very mm -hmm. beginning so that their decision-making doesn't feel so heated and so driven by loss heartache, despair, because mm. when you get to that place, yeah, you'll make all kinds of decisions you wouldn't have had you had a better headspace. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's just having boundaries, isn't it? And knowing what your boundaries are. Right. And I, I suppose the sooner that you establish that, the better. But the reality of that, I suppose, is, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know. Right. When you have your first cycle of treatment, there is also the other side of that knowledge is power, which is, you know, blissful ignorance. Right. Absolutely. You, know, uh, you don't have to worry about it because you it don't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. So it might not happen to you and you might that might not, you know, have to be something that you even need to consider. So um on the other hand, you know, this all of this information and all of these other treatments that actually, you know, if you don't have to burden somebody with all of those sort of thoughts and potential decisions, you know, I suppose there is an organic process there where people do come to these add-ons after having treatment that's that's not been successful. Right. But just like you say, then, you know, you're kind of going down the rabbit hole. I think this is where this is where the coaching comes in is to help you keep the level head, yes. you know, help yes. you to really think clearly about what it is you want to do in your situation. Just think about things, you know, that your your own personal circumstances and how that affects your decision making and what somebody else might decide to do it's not necessarily going to be the right thing for you so in that space of trust and um understanding what your options are i think that's where you're you're really empowered to then calmly make your own decisions and know that what you've decided is is right for you i also um, and think then you, there's no regrets I also think too that your boundaries change mm -hmm. as you're going through the pot, you know, like my husband and I set boundaries in the very beginning, but those boundaries expanded as we got further and further and further in the process, because again, you don't know what you don't know. Obviously you go into this very hopeful that 
you're going to fall on the right side of statistics and you're going to have success and all that. You know, I found myself considering things. Now we're an active family hoping to adopt. That's not a place. I, I, our boundary ended way before that with this, you know, I did not ever think I would have gotten to that place had I not had all the different steps of failures and crossed all the other boundaries first. So I also think it's hard. And again, that's, you're right. This is where like actual profound coaching is so important to help you understand that boundaries can change too. And yeah. And it just is based on ex your experience, your individual unique experience. It just has yeah. so much to do with presentation. Just the way that the information is revealed to you. We were talking, um, we have a mutual friend who's going through this and she's younger and her, uh, her initial diagnostics were very favorable. We think, you know, you have a little bit of a tubal obstruction. We can't find anything else going on. You're gonna do great. So they really pumped her up. Oh my gosh, you're going to have so many embryos. It's going to be a piece of cake. You're going to have a full family from this one retrieval, blah, blah, blah. So she went in there hyped up. And then, you know, the embryology uh, off the cliff, there were lots of eggs. And then this happened and then this happened. And then we ended up with zero embryos. And I feel like her frustration was more, in the messaging was in the messaging more than the not having the embryos it was that the build-up of the doctor was so pumped up and they were all so excited and then she mm. ends up and she was like what just happened because you assured me that i was going to get x and then i yep. just delivered y and why did mm. you even tell me all of that if y was even a possibility and we had that conversation like what is a what is the provider's boundary ethical. ethical expectation of how to deliver information can you deliver information without having any of that with no opinion i mean it's one thing to want to encourage people but this felt like such an extreme state that it's like oh my gosh this could have been just handled so much better yeah. and it's but i don't feel like that's talked about yeah. in the provider realm like nobody's really talking about messaging and delivery we're talking about data and science, but yeah. like we're saying, everything about decision making, so much of it just comes from presentation. It does. And there's an art to it, too. There's an mm -hmm. art to messaging. And I think sometimes that gets lost. There's a reason why marketing is important. <laughs> there's a reason why that's a whole career path. There's a reason why I do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the expectations just built up so much that you've just got such a long way to fall right and you know i i think from from the fertility professionals perspective you know it it can be so tempting to tell just tell patients what they want to hear yeah it's really feels good for you and it feels great for the patients and everybody's happy. And, you know, there, there's also something about wanting patients to have hope mm -hmm. that their treatment will work. You know, the positive mindset um, going into treatment. I think, you know, you, you've got to believe that it's going to work at some point just for it to, to be worthwhile for you. There's got to be at least a little nubbin of 
a little bright light somewhere. Um, but the temptation is to really hang on the positive. Mm -hmm. And the, the danger of that is that, you know, not every treatment goes as we expect it to. And I think when you're a provider that's been doing it you know, for a long time, it is easy to start making these sort of statistical judgments. I've seen this a million times. Yeah. This is going to go yeah. easy. This is going to so be I'm a so win. confident. You can trust right. in me. Yeah. Right. And so it's not, it doesn't come from malice in any way, mm. but it's just, you always have to consider who's on the other side and the way that they're going to feel if this becomes one of those strange, well, we weren't expecting that. There just needs to always be the realm of possibility that it won't go as easily as you felt or, and vice versa, you know, people that come in and they're immediately given uh, your statistics are very low. This is very low. You should just go straight to donor A. That's devastating to hear somebody mm -hmm. say, don't even try it. So both sides of that are pretty extreme. And most people probably fall somewhere in the middle. But again, just, just the delivery. That's the first conversation you have with the doctor is like, well, there's no way this is going to be beneficial to you. Mm -hmm. That feels yucky to begin with. Well, I also think that Obviously, we know the statistics, we know the success rates. Like you said, Eleanor, earlier, statistically, the success rates are still pretty low. And mm. so I also can't imagine being a doctor and in that place where all day long you're giving bad news over and over and over again. You're also giving great news and wonderful and happy news. But statistically, you're probably giving more bad news than good news. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine for a physician seeing that case that has potential to be good news mm -hmm. and wanting to do that so desperately. Like I, I, I can see that. I can feel that. So I just feel like it's complicated on every level. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that's really um, that I've understood a lot more now just through actually um, coaching patients is just having more of an understanding of uh, what their mindset is when they come into the clinic and just understanding how important it is the way that somebody speaks to them. Yes. And uh, just the way that they feel when they're sat in the waiting room. Um, just the, the smallest things can really have the biggest impact on patients. So, I think it's made me a better embryologist also mm. being a fertility coach because I have so much more insight into what a patient might be bringing into that room. Mm. And so just to have that understanding is, is really helpful um, because you do have to be careful what you say and how you say it. Of course. Um, because you are in the position of quite a lot of power. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a big power dynamic there and so it's yeah it, it is a job to kind of try to balance that a bit more and ultimately I try to be somebody that the patient can use to just ask the questions that they need to ask and for me to give them as much information as I can yeah but ultimately there's always a little parts of it or maybe not so little part that we just don't understand so 
there, is, there are some things that happen that we're never going to have an explanation for. And Absolutely. that is some of the most frustrating stuff, you know, unexplained infertility. Mm-hmm. How, you know, what can you do with that? I am that patient. I am the unexplained infertility, you know, seven miscarriages later, three rounds of IVF. Mm. I cannot seem to house a baby and there's no answer to it. And and that's the thing we did. We did all the testing and we did all all the things. I'm the one who did all the add-ons, didn't do the add-ons, added the add-ons back on like the back and forth, the back and forth Mm. still. And I just wonder all the time. I'm like, am I, like there has, again, I know life will always be like one small step ahead of science. It just has to be right. If you're creating life, yeah, there's going to be some things we probably just never know, like you said. And so am I just not making embryos that are compatible with life? And is there just something we just don't know yet mm-hmm. about? I mean, as an embryologist, like I wonder this all the time. I'm like, yes, this is a BGT tested embryo. Everything should be great statistically, blah, blah, blah. But like, what's the difference between a PGT embryo and a PGT embryo that actually creates life? Do we know? Mm-hmm. Like, is it, is it me? Is it my body? Or is it the embryo itself that's just not meant mm-hmm. to create life? Like, how do you, will we ever know? Mm. I mean, well, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? Yeah. I wish I had the answers to those things, but you know, I mean, doing um, doing an embryo biopsy and testing some of the cells of an embryo can tell us. You know, we we have developed those tests and techniques now to for it to be able to give us some meaningful information. For sure. But by no means have we unlocked all the secrets of life there. You know, we are literally, we're just counting chromosomes. Mm-hmm. And even if an embryo has the right number of chromosomes, right. we know that there are other reasons why a pregnancy might miscarry. You right. know, we, we are just really, you know, starting to understand there. When we um, went to San Diego, there was so much conversation about progesterone and the corpus luteum and again like we know that there has to be more there but we still haven't been able to identify Mm. what it is yeah and you know there's lots of people that are looking into um the importance of the endometrium and the timing Mm -hmm. of the transfer and you know that's a whole other world of of complication there isn't it you know we can focus on the embryo and what is the potential of the embryo and try to make that as best as as we can but if the conditions are not right for the embryo then you know that's that's also it's not going to give us the result that we want so there are at least two areas two big areas of research that's you know we're there are there are lots there's lots of work happening still and by no means are we we're getting close to really understanding all of those processes. I have a question. As like an as an embryologist, how much do you feel the immune system plays into all of this? And I'm asking just personally. I mean, I have multiple mm. sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis. I have autoimmune diseases. And mm. do you find like what do you guys think about? And um, maybe not even you in the UK or in Europe at large. Like how much 
do you guys put in to the research on how your immune system affects pregnancy or doesn't affect pregnancy or your successful outcome? What do you think? I mean, well, there's an easy answer really is that I'm not the expert to know about those things. So I would definitely leave that to the immunologists mm -hmm. to understand. Um, you know, we, what I would think about is looking to the research that we have to see what is the evidence. Um, I mean, in the UK, uh, we have our regulator, the HFPA, mm -hmm. and they guide us on how to follow the law. So we also are quite unusual that we have a law about what we can and can't do in IVF clinics. Interesting. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, it means that if you if you don't follow the regulations, you actually do go to prison. I mean, it's, you know, it's embedded in, in law. So, and that happened when Louise Brown was born, that set off all of this um, need for debate and it all went to Parliament in order to, to create this law because, well, proudly, we were the first country to to actually, you know, create a, a human being outside of the body, or, you know, at least to create the embryo. So it was a big thing for us. And um, so everything we do is is embedded in law at the end of the day, which is, is quite a reassuring mm -hmm. in many ways. And yeah. despite that, our regulator um, recently has, uh, so just going back to the add-ons, because immunology, immunological testing is also considered to be an add-on right. that is offered in some private clinics mm -hmm. in the UK. Um, so that's the way that we, we look at it really as an add-on. And um, so our regulator, the HFEA, has considered that those add-ons, the immuno immunological treatments, mm -hmm. um, to sometimes actually have potential for harm. Interesting. So, you know, this is, um, it's really contrary, you know, to anything you might think about medicine. You, you want to, you want to try to find new ways to, to help people, but you really mustn't be harming people in that process. So despite that, the, our regulator is not able to stop clinics from offering treatments that potentially might cause harm or in their consideration do not have um, any effect on the result of, of the treatment. But really that as embryologists, that's, you know, that's our, our go-to is to look at what the regulator thinks and also, you know, to do our own background research into the, the, um, the literature that, that's out there. Right. Um, I think for those sorts of treatments, the logic is not really there. As far as I know, in my personal knowledge, that the logic that um, because the the fetus has a different makeup to the to the um, to the mum, right? That you know that might be a problem, and the the mum's body might reject the the growing embryo mm -hmm. or fetus. Um, you know, we have our 
bodies have found ways around that. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think there's a lot to be said, and I've spoken to um, an academic in um, somebody, actually someone else that I met through LinkedIn, who's investigating the language used um, when talking about immunological treatments in fertility. It was somebody mm -hmm. that's had fertility treatment themselves and wanted to understand, you know, why, what the, the sort of words that we use are so emotive. They are. So for instance, uh, the main one that I can think of is, is natural killer cells. Right. Um, Right, or your body rejects your baby. <laughs> like the image rejects. that you have in your mind, yeah, it's you know it's extreme, isn't it? And mm -hmm. um, the person who actually invented the word, the description, natural killer cells, uh, regrets that because it's it's not a very effective description of that kind of cell and what that cell actually does in the body. Right. So. I think we're actually, you know, we're coming back full circle to the way that things are explained to patients who are trying to understand what all these things mean without being, you know, an expert in the field. So without being an expert in immunology myself, right. all you have to go on is, is that, you know, well, that sounds like a dreadful kind of cell. Why do I even have that cell in my body? It's awful. Right. Um, well, even on, even I think that the term miscarriage sounds harsh because it means I it was a mess up. It was a miss. I missed something. I did something wrong. That's what it feels like. You know, that even that term, I feel like feels there's just a weight to it that feels so personally responsible. Because I did, there's something about it, but you're right. All these different terms have profound we impact. We've got a whole other podcast on medical <laughs> terminology. Uh, Geriatric or, you know, pregnancy. Or even, you know, for, for women in particular, the way that our bodies are described, and, you know, we are, this mm -hmm. is a bit of a, you know, a, another rabbit hole, but uh, historically, uh this this is it's not a very well thought out area i mean incompetent cervix anyone yes. <laughs> for sure or like you just said hostile air. uterus yeah oh yeah hostile uterus come on let's think of better <laughs> ways to talk about our bodies you know we don't need that on top of all of the other pressures and you know the other feelings that we have when having particularly this kind of treatment you don't right. want to be kicked when you're down, right? Right. Like you said, Erin, geriatric pregnancy. <laughs> come on. Oh. We could come up with something else. <laughs> oh, dear. Please stop. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. okay. So parting words of wisdom. Parting. This is where I just want to say before we say that, I want you to know Ellen, that I am so inspired by the way that you are approaching this. Because if mm -hmm. there's one thing that we know about physicians and in that medical provider industry, they're much more likely to respond to their own than they are to respond to someone from outside their, you know, their discipline. So to have you piloting a study, 
proving it, showing research, it really feels like this feels like a strategy that I think could be an add-on that could deliver huge benefits without high cost. Right. That is easily accessible and that could readily be accepted as the new normal. So I'm super, I'm really excited that we met. I'm very excited that you reached out and I just want to facilitate your process as much as we can too, because again, your voice changes things for the physician listenership, if you will. It does. And is there, do you think, Eleanor, like, at any given point in time, I know obviously you work directly for your fertility clinic um, as a coach for your patients, but do you ever foresee making that bigger and offering it more universally to any pa- any IVF patient from around the world? Like, How do you foresee that growing and changing? I mean, thank you so much for your words. It's really kind of you to say that. And um I think you know just in response to that it when you find something that you're really passionate about it's really it become things become quite easy to do Mm -hmm. and I've just felt like I've been following my instincts with this Mm -hmm. I haven't really known quite where I'm going with it and I still I'm not completely sure about that Um, I'm just following what feels right and this is something that's really given me so much energy um, mm. that it's it's so satisfying and it feels creative and doing something that nobody else has really done before. So it's really exciting for me. And I'm also so glad that I've um, happened to meet you on that journey. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, yeah, my passion really is to, is to be able to help people more people with with just with the combination of knowledge knowledge and skills that I have and I'm not sure you know quite how that's going to happen yet but for sure I definitely want to be doing more than one afternoon a week of coaching yeah, and we so can... yeah. I'm sure that that is uh yeah that's definitely an area of development for me and Um, I just want to be able to stick with my values, which are that I'm not here in any business capacity. I'm not selling any products. It doesn't matter to me um, what treatment a patient has, what add-on they decide to have. I have no vested interest in that. My only interest is that they make the right decision for them with all the information that is necessary for them to be able to decide to make an educated decision and so um that's what i'm i'm sticking with really that if somebody wants an independent um information and help with making the decisions about their treatment i will never claim that i'm helping to increase the chances of success of somebody right. having their outcome I'm never going to be an add-on like that right. um, I think you know my my aim and what I would like to be able to prove that fertility coaching does 
from somebody like me who's who's qualified to be a coach and qualified to be a fertility professional is that I just want everybody to be able to have the best treatment that they can possibly have for themselves, have the best experience. I know too many patients that have really suffered and had terrible experiences one way or another way that I think ultimately were preventable. And if they'd had a coach to speak to from the start, they wouldn't have had to endure that. And that's some of the feedback that I've been given from my clients that I speak to is, you know, I, it's just, um, yeah, what, what you don't know at the beginning and some of that anxiety that patients experience, it, it was just unnecessary. And just with a few, a few bits of information and understanding about what was going to happen next, and how things might not go as exactly as they planned and what they might do in that case, then just to take away some of that anxiety and allow somebody to get to the end of their treatment and say, whatever the outcome, okay, whatever that was that just happened, you know, it was actually all right. It wasn't as bad as I thought. I knew what was going on. And okay, if it wasn't successful, actually, you know, I'm ready to start again. I could, I could do that again, right? If I, if I chose to do it again, it wasn't so dreadful that I'm never going to step back in that IVF clinic again, or it was, it was so traumatizing. You know, you can't make the experience. You can't give everybody what they want, but you can make the experience for them better. So, for sure, that is, that is me. Um, so well. That other people in your industry and surrounding your industry hear this and start to just open up to other options and other possibilities and other ways of handling patient care and patient advocacy and again assisting the physicians. Mm-hmm. How how can we also help the providers by uniting both sides? I think it goes both ways. Everybody has a greater level of satisfaction when there's better communication and better strategies. So I really, that's part of our personal passion project is to try to facilitate for both. Yeah, I think it's really needed. I think it's, you know, it's such a gap. And as we've been talking about, as the process gets more and more complicated, then there is a greater need for, um, patients to be able to stand up for themselves to know what to ask mm-hmm. and you know for for the professionals to understand where patients are coming from a little bit more so we know exactly how to handle different situations a bit better absolutely well it has been such a pleasure to speak with you this morning thank you so much for sharing all of that with us it's really it is it's just really inspiring it's very very grateful i think the fertility world is blessed to have somebody like you that's for sure absolutely thank you so much it's been my pleasure to be with you today yes well we will like you said we have another podcast that we've already precluded (laughs) now we'll have to do a (laughs) follow-up to talk about that and we look forward to hopefully producing some embryology 101 with you that's going to be absolutely yeah i'd love to do that all right we'll talk soon then
Awesome. Great. Have a great day. Enjoy your evening. Bye. See you. Bye bye for now. Bye. The Protected Space Podcast is hosted by Aaron Attaway and Bryant Liggett and is brought to you by The Fertility Resort. To learn more about us, head over to thefertilityresort.com and give us a follow on all social platforms at Protected Space Pod.